Hello and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Benjamin Boyce, who is a professor of communications at various Denver institutes of higher education. In this conversation, we talk about his work that is mostly featured on his podcast, Dr. Junkie, which you should definitely check out. The link is in the description. And in that podcast and also beyond that podcast, Benjamin Boyce studies, explores, and from personal experience, digs into drug use and drug abuse and the ways in which our society, being the United States, treats drug use and drug abuse. And in this conversation, we talk about the presuppositions that inform our so-called war on drugs and how that results in a lot of messiness and a lot of, to be frank, death. And the big question is, how do we rethink our conceptions of substances in such a way that it won't take such a big bite out of the life and livelihoods of so many of our citizens. So without further ado, I know this is a departure from my normal topics. And in that case, it is a opportunity for me to expand my knowledge into realms that I haven't necessarily thought of that deeply. So very thankful and very welcome to have on my podcast channel. Benjamin Boyce. You sound like a busy, busy man. And you just started the podcast, it says, in May of this year. Yeah, I think the first episode was ready, and that sounds right. Yep, May. What uh, prompted that? Lockdown? and uh, that Honestly, that was a little bit of it. I had a friend that overdosed and died. Um, mm-hmm. God, she just had her one year, the one year anniversary of her death was two days ago. And that was sort of what instigated it, is me thinking it's time. Uh, I just, I had gotten really lucky and had a really comfortable life, right? Got really lucky with my PhD, landed a really cozy job, and hmm. it was easy for me to sort of step out of the the line of fire, if you will, I suppose. And uh, it was just time to start talking. And what, what's your PhD in? Communication. Oh, okay. Just broadly so, speaking. Yeah, yeah my, well, my focus was on the war on drugs, basically that the... the architectural or rather uh, cultural narratives the cultural artifacts if you will that built and still remain that sort of got us all convinced in the first place that drugs were some terrible menace mm-hmm. and uh was that the uh, your dissertation on that yeah my dissertation was really focused on how race tied into that so how at the very beginnings of the war on drugs which Generally, in the United States, we place in the 1980s, and we're about 80 to 90 years too late. So I went back to the 1887 as the first law against any drug in the United States. It was in San Francisco, and it was directed at Asian immigrants who were smoking opium. And it wasn't against opium. It was against running a place where opium was smoked, which was a cultural thing. We, We in the United States have always loved our dope, but we don't call it the same. We consume it differently. We were taking, you know, cannabis pills when marijuana was outlawed and we were taking tons of opium tincture and drinking our coca-cola with cocaine in it when we outlawed those two substances as well and how do you think that that has uh what what do you think was the pressure to illegalize uh recreational drugs or yeah to, so push it to the margins what's bizarre is i think it was just a whole conflation of events all happening at once 
we, we, I always get asked, like, can you distill it to one thing? And it's not really just one thing, but it was, if you could point at one character, it was this guy named Harry Anslinger, who just turned out to be incredibly lucky or unlucky rather that he landed a job at what would become the federal bureau of, of narcotics just as we were getting ready to pass the 21st amendment and re-legalize alcohol in the united states so he's given this department he's busted his butt his whole life to become somebody who's going to be put in the history books and the second he gets there he realizes two-thirds of what we do is going to go away we're not going to be able to enforce booze at that point uh, heroin and cocaine were already illegal but there was no way that that amount of enforcement was really going to stand up to the to funding an entire office and certainly not to let it expand to what we see today. So his goal was simply to get drugs outlawed at the time in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s. Uh, we all know enough about the United States to know some things have changed quite a bit since then. The Civil War was still sort of fresh in our minds. It wasn't unusual at all to, to see somebody lean on uh, resentments that people had, whether they were race-based or class-based or gender-based, and to sort of use those things, that those attitudes to maintain power. We've seen it all the way through. It was the same sort of thing Wallace did, again, in the mid-1900s. Mm-hmm. I spent all day yesterday going through your podcast. I, I didn't get through the whole thing, but one thing that you talk about in a couple episodes is weed-washing which yeah. is an interesting concept. Could you uh, expand on that? Yeah, and this was actually a concept or a term rather that was that was established. I think she coined it by a friend of mine named Justice Rivera. But the idea is that consistently through our history as a country, you'll notice we sort of come to our senses at times. And we've just been seeing this with marijuana. We're also seeing the second wave of it right now with psychedelics. Denver has made psilocybin effectively legalized, and a lot of states are going to continue to follow suit with that. But when these things happen, we often go, yay, and we cheer, and we forget that there's this mass uh, industrial complex, for lack of a better word, of our heroes, of the people that in this country we esteem almost as much as the automatic gratitude we give to somebody that says they served. And a lot of us just say, thank you for your service. We've learned to just let this respect flood out automatically for certain identities. And police officers in our country are supposed to be those people. And to a lot of us, they always have been. We learned at a very young age, these are the folks you call at two in the morning. If somebody's creeping around your backyard and you're scared, right? There are superheroes. We've actually continued to expand what police departments and what law enforcement looks like. And if you really nail it, for year after year and you're not getting a bunch of complaints from the community and you're making all the good arrests and you're really doing good police work, you might be one of the really, really good superheroes that gets elevated with a big old pay raise and some additional training to a narco unit. We've established these additional units whose very existence depends on the war on drugs remaining. So when we talk about weed washing, when something gets legalized and it's where a ton of the drug arrests have come from, we all have to either assume that those guys just resign, go home, take their pay cut and work minimum wage jobs, or that they're human like the rest of us and they fight tooth and nail to to keep their jobs because, again, they're the good guys in our country. They're not a burger flipper or somebody that we can imagine being replaced. These are our heroes. We've trained them. we've, We've stood by them. So with weed washing, what we see is that when drugs are legalized, those same communities relatively rapidly that lose drug arrest are the arrests are placed with something else. And in the case of Justice Rivera, her work was focusing on how sex work 
comes to replace a lot of these arrests. So you can imagine open markets where drugs are usually policed the most because you can see these sales going on and collect evidence. You're using the same sort of surveillance that you would use in an open market sex work industry. So the infrastructure is already in place and it just uh, switches what it focuses on when uh, one thing is taken off the table. Yeah, you can't have good guys without bad guys is, is mm. the gist of it. And weed washing, I think, is something that's still in its infancy. It's a term I had just heard her use, but it rang true with what we're already seeing. Uh, also, the arrest for possession can just as easily be replaced with more arrest for illegal distribution or things like that, which we've seen in Denver, actually, since marijuana was legalized. We still have a lot of arrests for marijuana every year. In your work, and in, in by that I mean broadly, whether personal or professional, uh, okay. what are some of the ways that we can reconceptualize, I guess, the punitive nature of uh, policing different behaviors? Uh, what, yeah. How do we need to reconceptualize those behaviors, whether it's sex work and drug use and the way in which the uh, enforcement is enforced? Yeah, and that, I mean, really, that's a great question. It's the heart of the entire problem. And I use terms like a love-based ethos or a compassion-based framework. The problem is that in the United States, that doesn't even really make sense to us. I just <laughs> interviewed a judge a couple of weeks ago who sentenced me 20 years ago. Um, and we, we can talk about that as we go. But I also have a criminal record. And one of the things he has said is that we not only have to rethink terms like the war on drugs, but also we have to try to figure out where in the world that idea came from. What would ever make us want to wage a war? Not a um, you know coordinated effort and not a, an attempt hmm. to educate. None of those terms were used from the get. It's been a war since 1937 is the earliest clip I found of that language being used. Literally, we're going to declare a relentless war. So I think, hmm. first of all, we have to get through in our country this revenge-based mentality that we have and all of us have it like you can imagine somebody breaking into your house and smashing it to ribbons and taking all your best stuff including that thing that's very special that can't be replaced a loved one gave it to you before they passed and what we all think in our hearts at that moment is god damn it i want that person to get theirs it's hard for us to think about well what in the world would make somebody get to the point that they're breaking into my house um what can i do to make sure that in the future even if i'm angry can i channel that into saying my neighbor doesn't want their house broken into what can we do to make sure this person gets what they need so that in the future they're not breaking into houses with drugs this should be a whole lot easier because we've lied to ourselves for 60 50 60 years as a country and thrown around this word disease People that have addictions have diseases. Now, it turns out we've never treated them that way. I've never thought about locking my grandma up when her cancer or glaucoma really gets bad. It's the last thing in the world we would do. But with disease and all the things that go with it, we've had no problem in this country locking those folks up and sometimes giving some sympathy, giving them lighter prison sentence. But that's because in that is this mentality of revenge. If you're not going to follow the rules, damn it, the rest of us are, and we'll show you, right? This hmm. um, domination is the term I use a lot. Is there other countries that have a different tact, or what would be the model society yeah. that, that's actually functioning uh, right and this now? Is sort of, 
Yeah, this is sort of what's mind boggling to me is we're now 20, 30 years into countries that have tried this out of desperation, Portugal, and to some degree now it's spread all over that area, the Netherlands, Germany, Canada has safe injection sites, they haven't completely decriminalized. But the story of Portugal and some of the first places that did this is that drug use was rampant and the politicians got together and they did not all agree, let's just legalize drugs. That sounds like a backwards idea. What I always hear is you're going to get people using more drugs. But things were so bad. There's needles in the park. Their overdose rates are through the roof. And every year they kept going up, much like we're seeing in the United States right now. And they said, what do we got to lose? Let's give it a shot. And by the time a year and a half had gone by and they all came back together and talked about voting to undo it, not one of them wanted to undo this legislation because crime rates went down. The needles and the drugs that were discarded in parks because somebody saw a cop and got scared went down because drug users don't throw your drugs away our drugs away if we know we can't go to jail so what happened is that we got a model that would work really well about 20 i mean we knew about 10 years ago across the board there's been zero overdose deaths in any supervised injection site on the planet zero and these sites have been operating for uh, upwards of 30 years and I mean, that's a pretty powerful statistic in itself, considering in the United States, we're pushing 70,000 plus people that mm. are overdosing and dying on the street. It's probably so, peaking this uh, this year with the lockdown, I'm sure. Yes. Denver, the stat I saw the other day is we're already 75% higher than we were last year at the end of the year. The CDC's preliminary numbers are a little uh, squishy, but they've released 2019s and we saw an increase in 2019 to around 72,000. And you're right. That means this year with these deaths of despair, which are presenting in all sorts of ways, not just drugs. We're talking about suicides and all those mm-hmm. things that go with untreated mental illness when we all have to go on our houses and those distractions and, you know, the fun things we have go away. I agree, though. I think this year we're going to look back and maybe it'll be a um, an incredibly expensive turning point. And mm-hmm. it's sad it has to take this maybe. but So if... There's, I guess there's kind of two levels. There's the way in which enforcement happens. There's the way in which the state defines drug use and not just defines it in the books of law, but how it treats uh, drug users and, uh, I guess, uh, drug circulation. But then there's also the individual taking drugs. And what are, what are some of the reconceptualizations we can uh, begin to make? And this is one of the most fascinating things exploring your podcast is how you have kind of a different view that I don't quite understand yet. But what is it to be an addict or what is it to be a drug user um, outside of like a 12 uh, disease framework? What What is yeah. another way of looking yeah, at Yeah, so one of the ways I like to think of it is being human, right? And we don't really think about it that way much because most of us are, again, it's our culture. We're in a culture of division. Even those of us that are messing up a little bit or doing something that we think we shouldn't be always can point to somebody else and say, well, yeah, but at least I'm not. And with drug users, if you've known any pot smokers in your life, almost all of them will say, well, I don't like smoke crack like that guy, or at least I'm not shooting heroin. We have this idea that there's some difference there. We can back up a step more and talk about things like coffee or sugar or exercise, even gambling, things that many of us are addicted to. Uh, SSRIs, antidepressants are a huge one that you cannot just stop taking your antidepressant pill, but we don't think of it like an addiction because doctors write you those scripts and no one's ever by and large going to the under market world to purchase SSRIs like Prozac. So the first thing I would say is we we could start thinking about it in a way that uses compassion as a framework. And to do that, you have to say, well, can I get a glimpse of what people 
are talking about. And most of us can. If you drink coffee or tea in the morning, you know what it's like when you're like waiting for it to brew, right? And it's close. <laughs> that feeling is the same. Now it presents differently with different drugs, but uh, I also think of how alcohol is legal right now. And you and I, as far as I know, I know you're drinking a bottle of water, but my guess is you're not just like chugging down loads of vodka. There's plenty of drugs that are legal right now that because they're legal and we talk about them openly, people don't always irresponsibly use them. And when they do, they have this this groundwork and this open space to talk about that use because it's not, you never ask somebody, where'd you get booze? If they say they're struggling with alcoholism, we yeah. know where they got it, they got it everywhere. You also never worry about them maybe poisoning themselves from drinking bad booze as long as they're buying it from the oh. liquor store. So there's this all, and we're moving a little bit into like regulation, but there's a lot of reasons that we can think about why people use drugs that would actually ring true to us as opposed to our normal narrative, which is like, well, if I don't use them, I don't know why all these other folks are struggling with it. Yeah. So basically, I guess you're leading us to the question, why do human beings modify ourselves through substances? What, what's that basic function? And I yeah. guess that's something we all share. Yeah. To some degree. And here's what's weird. I, I go back to one of my earliest memories. Who knows if it's the earliest, but I found that the highs and the lows stick the most. So I have this foggy memory of my dad driving a car and going over a hill and him saying, hold on. And all of us probably remember something like this. And the first time you're like, whoa. And I said, wee. I got three sisters and a mom. And as I was saying, we, I looked around the car and noticed very different reactions from them. Right. We all have some sort of different neuro or neuro processes going on. Some of us love coffee. There's people I've met that hate it. Some of the stats, like 16% of people, including my partner, ironically enough, or coincidentally enough, don't like opioids when they take them. And that's a statistic that right there should tell us all that something is amiss. Because as far as I know, the first time you take hair, you're hooked for the rest of your life, right? That's what we've all learned from PSAs. We don't hear anybody say, no, about 20% of people that try uh, even the hardest or about 80% of people rather that try even the drugs we consider hard drugs like methamphetamine or cocaine never struggle with addiction about 20 or about 16% of the people that take them don't even enjoy them and they never want to take them again these are the sorts of just facts that once you start to hear them you automatically spice your knowledge base you realize you've been eating this really bland sandwich that's like all drugs are bad all drugs yeah. are illegal all drugs will destroy your life and the more we think about that, the more we also will probably realize we all know some people in our lives that don't fit that narrative. And you've been waiting for the other shoe to fall for years. And just Uncle Henry just keeps doing cocaine on the weekends. And I swear he still works 40 hours a week. We all also know the person that gets in big trouble. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when we think about, uh, are, are you kind of putting us on a spectrum of, I don't want to say responsible, there's some moral language in there, but but people who... Uh, are, are overtaken by the stimulus that is contained by a drug and people who uh, are in the middle and then people who completely disregard it. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Except that to a large degree, we're the same people. So my first, uh, I, the, I mean, I used marijuana from the time I was about 15. I was neuroatypical. I've only recently come to realize I was on the spectrum and that was a lot of navigating. I didn't know what was going on with me. We didn't really hmm. have that language back then anyway. But around 19, uh, 18, actually a little bit earlier, before 18, I was still at home. I had some trauma that really started to get the best of me. This happens to a lot of people when their brains go from 
childhood into the the changing updating stages of adulthood and i stumbled into xanax and xanax is a benzodiazepine that works great for panic attacks and for high levels of anxiety what you get on the streets if you buy xanax is a big two milligram bar what you get if you go to the doctor is an appropriate dose that might be two milligrams it was not for me. And so commenced the car crashes and the accidents and the fights and the blackouts and the parents kicking me out in tough love. So I look back on that and I realize it's an example of it not being the case that these drugs existed. So they caught me. I had no education. I'd never even heard of Xanax or benzos. I had no idea what they were doing in my brain. And the second my trauma went away, I said, well, then I'm down. Right. And me and five friends that were also spinning and traumatized as early adults and still kids just shoveled them in our throats. Now, in the meantime, all these issues arise. I lose my license. I'm going to jail. My family pushes me out. I know I'm a criminal and a bad person. <laughs> that sticks, right? You learn through the use. And I actually had learned before that with marijuana. I was a relatively, I wasn't straight A, but I was a good student. I got good grades in all my classes, never failed, uh, struggled with some anxiety, started smoking weed, was fine for a year until I got caught smoking weed before class. And then everything changed because from that moment on, I, I was arrested in school, suspended. I knew I was a criminal and I knew I, I knew even if I didn't feel like one, I better hide it. Right. I better keep it on the DL. I better make sure that any cop I see is not my friend because they can't be my friend and arrest me. There's this mental trick that snaps immediately when you realize you're on the other side of the law, but your life hmm. is so much better than it was before. Hmm. I, I've been toying around with the idea of authoritarianism versus leniency, and I think that there's a middle ground there, and it might be in how we conceptualize, uh, let's say, a young male who is slipping into the path that you're slipping in. Like, there's the tough love, or there's just the, I guess, the hippy-dippy, do whatever you want, and I think that either of those, and it's all dependent on the individual, how it plays out, but how do we think about, or how, in your case, what would have been the correct way to be yeah. treated? Yeah, and that that's a deep question. I have often made, I was really into Tupac at the time. I had some, like, masculine role model issues that when I stumbled mm. onto Tupac who was, had just died at the time he had this like hyper masculine representation didn't take no shit from nobody right and just said it like it was off the top of his head and mm. uh I stumbled into that uh as a way to like model my behavior and because he was like one of the few people I remember connecting to on a parasocial level I've made this comment repeatedly that if Tupac himself would have just come up to me at 16 years old and been like hey let's go hang out and said to me, oh, you should lay off the weed, don't smoke it till after school, or at least, you know, regulate your dose. And those pills, trust me, I'm watching, they're not doing you well. Hey, check out this book, you should read it. Hmm. Somebody at the right moment in my life could have got a message to me. The problem was I wasn't hearing it from the people that were saying it, and the person that could have said it wasn't there. So my thought is the more that we can start to do, or put the information out there, different venues, different formats, different media, different speakers, some of us that are straight laced and have never touched drugs, some of yeah. us that have walked through the fire of the war on drugs and come out the hmm. other side. Yeah. I think that the education is a big part. Um, I don't know if I would have ever gone over the edge and taken large amounts of benzos or other drugs had I known what was going on in my body or that I maybe could get the same effect through a controlled dose. But that's the starting point to me. We have these incredible talks with our kids about things that we know are important, like learning to drive. Many of us learn directly from our parents. And it's because our parents know 
That's a really important and dangerous thing. I want to be involved with teaching you when it comes to sex, when it comes to drugs, we say, just say, no, I don't really Mm -hmm. feel comfortable talking about that. And we're paying the reward. So um, I know it's a roundabout way of answering the question. I don't think it's a one size fits all. I think it has to start with us being willing to talk about stuff that strangely, I don't know how far you've got in, but most of those podcasts that you listen to that I've done, you don't walk away at the end wanting to use the drug. It turns out that the more you learn about a lot of these drugs, the more you're like, maybe at some point, but good point. I think I'm going to try an alternative. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of reasons not to use drugs, but not once they're romanticized. Okay. Yeah. There's that negative romantic. Well, you bring up romanticization. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. When I was 19, I stumbled into Jack Kerouac and I spent a year just like devouring Kerouac and uh, associated to Kerouac is William Burroughs, um, who I didn't really get that. He was too dark for me, but there is that romanticization of the junkie. I don't know if that's necessarily a Currency now, I, I'm I, I'm not connected to the kids. I don't know if they're going into the beatnik thing anymore. It's but not with heroin so much, although I'm sure it'll come back around. But the thing is, it is with other drugs, and not because you and I saw those narratives and really thought to ourselves that looks romantic. It's because we saw those narratives and we thought to ourselves, whatever it is that's ruining these folks' lives. I mean, if you're ruining your life for something, it must be freaking working, right? So Hmm. I was fine as a kid. I do remember seeing, for me, it was the PSA where they're running in slow motion and it's, I want to be a ballerina. I want to be a a cop when I grow up. And then a cop's hand comes out and snatches this guy and says, no one wants, says, I want to be a junkie when I grow up. Don't let drugs Hmm. get in the way of your dreams. And I remember at six, seven, eight years old watching that and thinking, I don't know. Something's going on there because I keep hearing story after story of people that learn the same shit I'm learning as a kid. And yet they got to an age and went and got the thing they weren't supposed to get. I think if we conceptualized what a world with with safe injection sites in every community would look like, we would suddenly have something to feast our eyes on. And the second you see what life as an addicted person is like, at best, it looks like boring, boring, normal crap. And at worst, it, it, there's no romance at all. But once the image is gone and all you have is like some books you can get into, but the people are long dead and PSA after PSA, that's just like, mm-hmm. and cops coming yeah. in and opening the big suitcase full of every drug you now want to try. I think that's where that romance comes from. In your arc, what was it at the core that got you through or the towards rehabilitation, towards getting your PhD, towards kind of putting things in order and going forward? What was the the thing in, that you landed on? That a ton of luck and, and support. I mean, I mean, it's luck was really tied up because from the get, when you get out of prison, they make sh- pretty sure you know that that 80% of you are going to be back within five years across the board. There's no such thing as successful prison. It's, it's a recidivism state. Same with addiction. First 12-step meeting you program you go to, you're going to learn that you're almost certainly going to relapse relapse at some point, and you won't be back into recovery until you get done with the relapse and you're clean. You're either clean and sober or you're dirty and messing up. So my support group was number one. I got married around that time and just felt, again, kind of luckily fell into a relationship, found a methadone program, which is like something I anybody that is on opioids and can get into either Suboxone or Methadone. The second that daily, oh God, I have to go find my fix and then hide it as I drive home because it's illegal. The second that goes away, we find ourselves going 
it's eight in the morning. I got the whole day in front of me and I'm not sick. Right. So those two things are, okay. are huge. The trauma being immediately removed. Whereas every day before it was like, okay, I got to go get my dope and hide my use. And secondly, having a, a almost unconditional sort of love that was willing to see where my potential was at. That love, and this might be a little, we're going into personal territory, but what, when, when you received the stability, what were the found founding principles of what you wanted to become or, or be yeah. build your life up? That's, that's an interesting question. So I've, I'm finding myself going back to what my relationship was and uh, is with my partner and my wife. We're still married. We're 15 years now. We got married the day after we met. So I had just got out of prison. This is sort of a bizarre offhanded story, but I got out of prison. She lived in Kansas city. I was in Michigan. You basically can't leave the state on parole unless you got a really good reason. So she comes up to visit me. I was already uh, physically dependent on heroin again, but at that point, because when you get out of prison, you really haven't got any new tools, but trust me, you've got a whole bunch of new trauma and a bunch of anxiety and all the stuff you pick up there. She comes up to visit me. We just had like a whirlwind 24 hours and got married. We were in, we were in deep. I was in big trouble. I moved out. I got transferred to Kansas city, but because we started, this sounds weird, but because we started from complete scratch and we're both kind of in a desperate spot, I think we did a lot of the work that most relationships skip because there's this lovey dovey dopamine fueled, you know, frenzy of what love really is. And we had that for like five seconds, but by the time I moved to Kansas city, I was moving towards trying to reduce my heroin intake. And um, so for me, I think it just came down to deciding what we both wanted. And the second we had backed up and said, this is awful. We don't know each other. We don't, <laughs> we're in big trouble. Do we want to do this? Let's make some rules. And then we just sort of stuck with them. Okay. Uh, I don't suggest that as a way forward though. And this is sort of <laughs> the, what's a bummer about a lot of my story is that I can't really say here's a go-to guy because it's a, this is what addiction looks like in the United States. It's sporadic. It's all over. And your your life is, by and large, funneled, channeled, controlled by forces that are outside your control. Okay. How do you regain that control from the systems that are operating to, uh, I guess, rob you of the control? What are yeah. some of the things? That so doctors, where I'm aiming right now, and it's unfortunate doctors are the next stage and like where we're attacking with the war on drugs. We've gone after the dealers, we've gone after the users, and now we're pretending they have a disease so we can't attack them. Let's get Michael Jackson's doctor who gave him the propofol, right? It's a, okay. an idea that's old. But many of these drugs now are starting to make their way into medicine. And I've been encouraging people more and more, get a doctor on your side. This is so hard to do because you're going to run into so many that don't want to risk anything. And they have every reason to just be like, mm, no, you need to get out of my office. But the more we can get the doctors on board, uh, I think that's going to be where this heads as we see it's still slow growth we're going to have, but the dominoes are starting to fall and they're going to continue to fall. And the second John Boehner is like the the epitome for those that don't remember John Boehner, this Republican who was like so anti-marijuana, you wouldn't have believed it. And now he's getting ready to be a, a big part of the first multi-state co-op for marijuana distribution hmm. because there's money there. And he'd say he also had this moral you know, attack and he had to rethink some things. But the second capitalism can work to the advantage of investors that right now have nothing to gain and actually a lot to lose by legalizing hmm. drugs because they're invested in our mark. If the prisons empty out, all those food contracts go away. They're invested in weapons manufacturing and they're invested in clothing. The prison industrial complex is going to shrink in half 
if, if not more, within okay. 10, 20 years after we legalize drugs. Yeah. And so that all that framework is going to have to be exapted or adapted to something else, something yeah. positive. Yeah. And this is where you have everybody go, well, then let's just slam on the brakes. Because how do you how do you convince a police officer who's nailed it, like we were talking about the hero, that the right thing to do now would be for you to um, maybe go guard shipments of heroin that are coming up from South America as we drive them and distribute them to different heroin shops up the road. Hmm. Or maybe you could work at a, a safe injection site. It is going to require a systemic switch from the bad guys are now the they're the good guys. They're the guys you're being hired to basically give the drugs that you were arresting them for having before. I think that's what we're going to have to do is think how can we tie into some of these identities people have that they've used police officer to sort of perform their identity or to be who they want to be and mm -hmm. cater to those identities without saying you're bad and you're fired, but rather let's, let's mold the system into something that we want. Yeah. It seems like there can be, it has to go back to a reconceptual conceptualization of drug use and everything attached to that. And yeah. it might even be deeper than than that to go into what is good, what is evil. Why, why is drug use evil or dirty? And I, I think that there are good reasons why, but it might not be the correct framework. And we would have to switch that framework by really investigating what is it about it that is wrong and then in our collective wronging of that thing, mm -hmm. it kind of collects all this detritus of uh, being the bad guy, you know, which is kind of romantic, and then treating people it, as it the is. bad guy, which makes you the good guy if you can do that, which is romantic too. Oh, and tonight, it's a, it's a hell of an identity, and this is the thing with kids. We can go back again and talk about it happens at every step of the way, but kids never feel like they have an identity. That's what adolescence mm. is about, is figuring out who you are. It's not your mom and dad as much as you were like, oh no, I can't just be what I've been. I have to find my own clothing style, my own yeah. hairstyle. And you nail it the second you're a weed smoker or whatever, only because that's an identity that exists. And the more we can, again, de-romanticize that and make people say, it's not that it needs to be bad or good, it just needs to be a neutral thing that we're like, well, I guess it's none yeah. of my business. We have this model right now. It's no one's business if you're taking SSRIs every day. But believe me, within a month, you're going to be a much happier and more chipper and engaged student. You're going to be happy. You're going to have a much better time at school, just like you will on some drugs. The difference is no one's ever going to be in your business like, you know, I'm Prozac. Tell the truth, right? We don't yeah. care. There's a way to reformulate some of these things. Okay. Um, so what set you on the path towards academia, towards teaching and learning yeah. and getting into that? Luck. The system was in my, was, I mean, the stars just sort of aligned. My wife was finishing her bachelor's. I got out and got my parole transferred to Kansas City and found that there were plenty of jobs doing things that I wasn't really interested in doing. And that's what they expect you to do. You get out of prison, wear the scarlet letter, asshole, right? And mm -hmm. for the rest of your life, be prepared to do concrete, build a house, flip burgers. These are very respectable jobs, by the way, but they never fired in me that thing that made me want to get up and go to work every day. I had never yeah. found my thing. So I worked some of those jobs and just realized like, this is awful. By a twist of, of lucky fate, I had pled out of my one drug charge that I was charged with to a reduced charge, which meant I was still eligible for Pell Grants. And I had realized I'd already finished a year or two of college. 
I could go to school and sort of massage the system in a way that covered my hmm. parole requirements. So I didn't have to work a full time job. My wife had a good job at the time. Uh, and I mean, I, it was a lot of serendipity. I kept finishing a degree and then I would think, yeah, I'll apply. And I would apply to a place that actually had a lot of folks that had branched out into the uh, criminal community. So my okay. master's was with a guy named Stephen Hartnett, who's been teaching college classes of creative writing for free for, I don't know, 20 years now. And it was just, oh, wow. again, serendipity. Why communications? Uh, I got my undergrad, started in law, and after about half a pre-law, and had a professor say, stop it. Right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not that you're not a good student. It's that no law school is going to touch you. And even if they did, you're never, oh. you're going to hoop through hoop. So I moved to law enforcement, had the same conversation. Uh, got a, I ended up switching my undergrad degree just to general arts or a degree in the arts. And then my master's degree was a matter of me realizing um, that there were such a thing as like cultural artifacts and that I had learned a lot of, I grew up in a charismatic Christian household in the nineties and like the word of faith movements early days. So I knew that the things you hear and see and learn as a kid teach you stuff that you never realize you learn. And I just hadn't realized there was a, a field hmm. of study that focused on that. What, could you define for the general audience member what a cultural artifact is? Yeah, uh, that's a good question because I have the problem with people that do what we all sometimes do, which is use big language and don't unpack it. <laughs> artifact is what you would think. It's just anything that is remaining that you could look at and try to make sense of whatever it came from. And so when we say cultural artifact... It's simply anything old, new, ancient that came from a culture that gives you an idea of what that culture is. So I use it to describe films a lot with the things that make sense and the things that we just don't see in our films in the United States versus Hmm. other countries, music, statues. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of a sub theme or there's some language that I heard in your podcast pop up, uh, like a, you're post-Christian or you're, you're non-Christian. Recovering Christian, I think is Recovering how Recovering Christian. Yeah. What, yeah. I, I think we have very similar uh, beginnings. I grew up uh, in the 90s in a charismatic church. I, I went yeah. in a different direction. Um, but drugs were a part of my experimentation when I was trying to find my own identity. So mm-hmm. what what is it about uh, Christianity that, that you are recovering from yeah and so i and i always make sure i clear that up there's plenty of people i know i still have lots of christian friends there's plenty of brands of christianity that are no more toxic than your average religious identity or spiritual identity mine turned out to just be toxic especially in how it dealt with me so mine was Hmm. uh, especially somebody that's now identified i'm on the spectrum I need concreteness. And most of us that are on the spectrum, when we study something, we just like, we, we have to understand it. We can't just get partway in and see, oh, I kind of get it. That works great for the podcast. But with the brand of Christianity I was raised in, I, was, I learned very well to separate fact from speech and uh, logic from decision-making, right? Because we relied on uh, the faith, on faith, this idea that faith is the substance of things you hope for. It's not the evidence of things you see. It's what you want. So if you mm-hmm. want to speak, and this is what the word of faith movement is about, speak into existence all that stuff you want and you don't have to go work for it. God will give it to you. Okay. And in my mind, we were. it was my whole first 15 years. It was just a consistent way of being. Something goes wrong. The washer's broken. The car's broke down. Let's just talk it into into being fixed. Yeah. It's, do you think that uh, there was an aspect of drugs that was kind of that manifestation of wanting something? Or? That's a good question. Um, 
I don't know. I, I think that on the flip side, as a uh, somebody group in, in a church, I knew that drugs were sin and that identity was there. But I also okay. know that within a short amount of time of even using marijuana, I, I discarded that whole idea and had realized like, dang, I wish this made me a good guy because I had found something that I needed. Uh, at the mm. time though, what's wild and here's how the church I was raised in works. If you get a hold of people at a young age, you can just about convince them of anything. And I was convinced of what I had heard. I was convinced that I was getting out of bed, sinning first thing in the morning because I didn't mm. feel right. And then would function great for like five hours because I had my cannabinoids. And the whole time I had this guilt and the shame and this lying because you don't tell people. I mean, God, you don't brag about it. Yeah. That's where a lot of my problems really originated from. So it's been hard for me to separate the uh, religious identity I was given as a kid from the fruit mm. because they really were hand in hand it's not to blame anyone by the way i doubt my parents or anybody will listen to this because i don't care but it's something i get accused of at this point a lot i was like well there you go blaming folks and it's not that it's going yeah. back and making sense of at 25 when i did such and such what got me there at 32 when i did such and such what made me think that was the right decision things like that in in thinking about how individuals function and groups function i one question that i that comes up a lot in my work is that what is the purpose of religious language, religious understanding, and how do we how do we deal with that in this this age? Um, yeah. Multiculturalism, a lot of different things are acting like religions but not calling themselves religions. Yeah. I think there's a religious impulse. You put it wonderfully. I hope you can uh, restate that. It, it's not about what we see. It's about what we hope for, speaking into existence what we hope for. Yeah, I was actually quoting, I want to say that's a verse in, uh, God, one of the books that Paul was alleged to have written, although I don't think he wrote that one, First Corinthians, faith is the substance okay. of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. And it was just one of those, again, our scripture, our religion was really good at cherry picking just the good ones and then separating them from the verse, you know, a chapter before where God <laughs> commands you to keep slaves as long as they're from another country and don't look like hmm. you. Don't pay attention to that one. Follow the one about X, Y, and Z. That was just a really fru fruity or a fertile rather verse. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you think, I think that, it does a great job, by the way, when you think about faith nowadays, when people are like, well, what's the yeah. problem with it? It's great when you have a verse that says, here's what it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think that, sorry, we, we froze up. Yeah. Do you think that, um, you spoke earlier about getting information out and there's different ways of doing that. And, uh, you know, you have like a, a rock star or rap star or whatever with a better understanding of drug use so that they can formulate that in a way where people can hear it. Um, like there, there needs to be like an information campaign in a way and probably not so intentional. Just uh, get that information out. What are some of like the essence of of what you think we could, and I think I began with this question, but what do you think we could do to really understand what drug use is and to be healthy about that understanding and then lead us towards proper activism, uh, for lack of a better word, of kind of changing the shape of our culture yeah. around it? Yeah. So let me write down the second one so I don't forget. There's two things. And the first one is um, to recognize that we're never going to stop people from from using drugs that's been my really my big goal in getting through this and this is where i find so much common ground with anybody almost of any political or religious background that'll listen to me <coughs> excuse me is that 
if we recognize that we, we've been trying for 120 years to just get them to go away and we have more in the country now than we did back then and they're all more polluted than they were back then we have to acknowledge we're not going to stop people from using drugs i've made the point like even if you snapped your finger and pulled the magic of eradicating all drugs on a certain list tomorrow Trust us, we'll go out and get some spray paint. It's a dollar at Walmart. We will always find a way to get intoxicated and you can make booze from anything in your fridge if you let it rot the right amount of time. So that's the first <laughs> thing is to say, people aren't gonna stop using them. And when people use drugs, some of them struggle. Some of them overdose and die. Some of them have no idea what they're doing and they take a thousand times more than they should or a huge chunk more than they should like happened to Jimi Hendrix. So the more we can start with that and say, okay, Whatever attempt we're talking about making, we should not aim it at stopping people from using drugs or eradicating drugs because we're wasting our time. And then the second thing is shame because our system, again, only works with shame. Now, it's easy to say that, but we don't do a really good job of talking about what we mean. And I saw Melania Trump uh, at Liberty University, and this was just before the pandemic hit, so she was live. And they had Liberty University as a Christian university. They had this big convention for uh, drugs and talking about how to get rid of shame. So she gets up on stage. She gives this great speech. We got to get rid of shame. We have to stop shaming people who are struggling with addiction. And they go to the Q&A and they ask her how she talks to Byron. And she proceeds to say, like, I tell him not to do things like that, because if you take drugs, they'll mess your life up. Hmm. Okay. So what are we talking about when we say shame if we're not saying using these things will mess your life up? Using these things will take make your teeth fall out. Using these things means you're weak. You, and I'm strong because I'm not using them. And this is the only language we have. So I think okay. that the second thing would be learning how to talk to people about drugs from a young age and not centering. I mean, trust me, as a parent, luckily my kids are grown now, but I didn't want to tell them like I just wanted to say they're all bad and don't use them and just believe in my heart they were going to do it until they were 21 because it's really hard. But the more we tell the truth and say drugs are a thing and many people use them to better their lives. And if you don't use them responsibly, which just I like that word, by the way, it means do your homework ahead of time. It means talk to your friends about them. If you're hiding your use, you're in trouble. Simple things okay. like that. You could get in trouble. Yeah. If you hide your use, then that by definition, by definition means you don't have a support group or anybody to talk to about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or at least here's what here's what's wild. You do. You do have a uh, let me make sure it's not me, because if it is, I can get rid of it. Yep. I don't hear it. Oh, OK, cool. Uh, oh, because I got my headphones. On. If you are not telling the people in your big support group, your support group usually just becomes the people at the dope house or the people you're using with. And time and again, those are the folks that are generally in, in a bad spot. We're all banded up together. And by the way, it, like the social circles that form in addicted groups are unbelievably strong. It's, not, it's hard to even describe, but hmm. that makes sense. You can think of many situations where people are put in a very stressful anxiety filled situation we're scrambling for our next fix of course we you know get to know each other mm. has the internet uh provided uh more healthy communities for this or has it been a net negative net positive i think it's been net zero there is mm. more info out there but one of the a good example maybe would be that right now anybody that's listening to this this is a, a really good thing to know you can send any drug you want to the dea yeah that dea you pay for this they will test it for you you can write your own number on it so it's completely anonymous and you can actually if you're still paranoid go through an extra step of sending it to dance safe who will then forward it on to the dea and within two days they will test it with a spectrometer and put a picture of it the city it came from in the code so you can look it up 
And that means everybody in your city can then log on. I did this a lot when I was using at different times to see what was sold in Denver today. Is there fentanyl in it? Is there a fake Xanax that's being sold? The (laughs) fact that this has been a thing for a few decades at least, and we don't even know about that, that's a big part of this war on drugs that like there's all these responsible tools that have slowly started to make their way in. We don't really pay attention to that so much as does ecstasy put holes in your brains? How bad is methamphetamine? How much can you use before you get addicted? Right. Which Hmm. these are very good questions, but they should be like chapter one in fifth grade. And by the time we graduate high school, we should all to some degree, even if you're never going to use drugs, I guarantee you're going to have friends that do. We should all be educating ourselves and our children early in life. And we can start to nip these, these, uh, these deaths Hmm. in the bud. So are you saying that there's a website, a DEA run or sponsored website that has a map of every drug in your area and the purity? It's, is yeah, that like basically an address book? <laughs> yeah, well, and it's old. So here's what's wild is it's like set up just a, it's almost like a blog. So you'll get a square picture of the drug that was sent in because they photograph it. And then it'll say every substance that was in it because they full spectrometer okay. it. And then it just says the city. And then again, you're allowed, you don't have to put a code, but if you want to make it easier the next day to go in and look, you can label it like P86512. You just get to pick your own code to keep it anonymous. But the point is, this is something that like, not only would we not know about, but a lot of us would be paranoid because we're thinking, hmm, is the DEA checking for fingerprints? This is what the DEA should be doing. This is one of the few things that the Drug Enforcement Administration is doing that actually is making us safer. But even when we hear about it, we tend to be like, really? what's the catch, right? Why would they do that anyway? Isn't it making it easier for people to, to not die? And eventually a big chunk of people that don't die, right? We get help or we, we reform ourselves or we check into therapy. We never do it if we're dead. What are some of, um, some states that are going in the right direction? Do you see any of that or maybe even cities in America that are going? Denver just recently decriminalized small amounts of of drugs as well. And I think that's going to be a good first step only because it's a middle there is no middle of the aisle god if you're in the okay. middle of the aisle it's not that everybody talks to you it's that they hate you i mean you can probably <laughs> relate to that <laughs> yeah you you don't we're no longer at a point where that means you get more people to listen you usually just get everybody saying you're that other team in disguise but yeah, yeah. um yeah i think that's a big part of it so um decriminalization a negative view of that would be like oh we'll just go there for the drugs or whatever like what what's the positive how does that work out over time same thing they just go there for the drugs here's my thing we got people making enough money to do their own dope every day by the dozens or hundreds in every little village town city you live in and all of them if they get robbed they can't call the police. So there's violence involved with the underworld market. Okay. The drugs cost upwards of a thousand percent what they should if we were selling them, sometimes 10,000%. It costs about a buck a gram to make heroin and cocaine right now, even though they're illegal in most of the countries where they're made. So if we legalized it, production, capitalism, that price goes down. Right now, a gram of heroin on the streets is, I mean, you're probably going to pay 150 bucks and it's about 30% at most heroin. So it's about a thousand dollars a gram for mm-hmm. it cost a buck to make. I think that's a big part of it is is reconceptualizing what that means. Of course, we'll send people there. You will probably, just like we saw with marijuana, see a very slight increase if you really look close at the numbers that show when you legalize drugs, the numbers of people that use them go up. But the numbers will be not heroin, not cocaine. They'll be down here with Vicodin and codeine. Because if you're going to use some vi- or heroin and you've just decided like, 
I kind of want to try it. I'm kind of, and you go to the doctor, your dealer's not going to tell you what the doctor will. Your dealer's not going to say, in case you didn't know, heroin and codeine are effectively the same chemical, but codeine is a pill. It's safer. If you have mm-hmm. never taken it, why don't you start there and come back and tell me how it went? Your dealer's going to say, take two, actually take five. I'll give you a deal, right? The more we send people there and rethink that, the more we're going to get people that bump into professionals that have all the tools to convince them, to talk to them. I, I envision a system with a rehab right upstairs that says, sure, oh. you want to go upstairs? Yeah. Okay. So if you go in, if you walk into a doctor's office and there's more leniency with regards to uh, drug use, if you want to consume some drugs, the doctor, you're saying, will have that available, but also an array of other tools yeah. or, or, you know. Yeah, and, then- and we're also like, this is fantasizing probably 100 years away. I think before yeah. this happens at the doctor's office that we all go to now, we'll have specialized clinics. And right now we call them methadone clinics. We could almost use those as the starting spot and then incorporate some of the other drugs the the mind blower and where people go "Uh uh-uh absolutely not is when you say so yeah those drugs would be methamphetamine they'd be heroin they'd be cocaine you'd have crack pipes there for people if they wanted them and i go back to point one you will never stop these folks from using drugs nobody's going to walk out of that clinic and say they won't give me my crack well then i'm not going to smoke crack we'll go up the road and we'll pay too much for it and we'll hide as we do it and maybe overdose under a bridge or in a back bedroom the second we're in a doctor's office, the pros are involved. And we've instigated a whole new system that is designed mm-hmm. not to catch and punish, but to minimize and keep you alive until you're ready to maybe reduce your use. And that might be the day after you die of old age at 107. That's fine. As long mm-hmm. as you live to be 107, I'm fine with that. So speaking to somebody who is, uh, let's say, is using drugs and kind of wants to rethink their life, what are some of the good voices or tools or even schools of thought that have been helpful for you and that you share? Yeah. um, So Mia Salovitz has a really good book. It's a couple of years old now called The Unbroken Brain that I recommend to anybody that's trying to get a grasp on what addiction really is at the at the brain level there's a lot of really interesting stuff we're learning and it's looking like within about five years we won't be using the the terminology of a disease anymore which is again is long overdue but we're going to start to recognize that what's really happening in your brain isn't all that different than uh, mindful meditation people have realized there's there's states that you can affect without chemicals across the board i've never quite gotten anywhere near like tripping acid but i've gotten pretty close with my mindful meditation to effective to affecting some of the same states that I achieved on cocaine or on heroin at different times in my life. So I think that's a big part of it is, is uh, moving towards finding better ways to do what you need to do to get through the day. Okay. So um, you bring up mindful meditation. Is there a school of thought or is there like kind of a, a catch-all term for the spiritual practice, for lack of a better term? That, that... Yeah. Uh, actually, I, for me, it's just it's the mind, it's mindful meditation of the sort that Sam Harris is the guy I usually go to. But hmm. I'm not actually stuck. I'm finding myself in the last year sort of reaching out, which I've been told by a lot of meditators, this is normal. You start with what just feels normal. And then after you get in that space, you start to reach out and try different set formats or forms. But okay. I would say YouTube is, it sounds weird, but if you've never done this, Google, make sure it's mindful because there's a lot of types of meditation that are like, repeat the mantra. Mindful meditation means trying to pay attention to what the hell is going on in your body. And those of us that have done it are like, holy crap, there's a lot going on in here. I had no idea 
but the more you do it, the more you realize you can find where your headache is. If you're somebody that struggled with headaches and finding where it is, weird things like that, that don't even make sense until you dive in and start to do these things. And you realize my anxiety is located at a certain spot that helps me breathe better. Mine is on my out breath. So is it like the dead spot between breaths you're supposed to focus on with mindfulness happens to be where my anxiety resides, which is a very interesting oh, wow. tool for me to work through. Or a, huh. uh, so it's almost as though being attentive, changing the way that we view drugs actually comes back into the user and then into everybody else of this is a way, drugs are a way for us to modify our state. And it's usually prompted by something that's going on that maybe is negative or that we can't control or maybe Sometimes, even boredom, maybe curiosity, maybe hunger. Care, there you go. And think okay. about this. It's often in our culture implemented by positivity. We drink way more often when we're going to the bar than we do when we're depressed. Now we do do both, right? The one we talk about is because we're depressed, but most of us crack a beer when it's party time, not when it's, <sighs> right. And that's where sometimes yeah. you get into addiction. But yes, I agree generally with what you're saying. Yeah. And then it can be with the end goal or implementing the end goal that experimentation with drugs isn't the drugs are not an end in themselves. They're always going to be a means for achieving something else. And if you can get to that, if you can conceptualize that, then you can be in control and let them go when they're not actually getting you there. So attentiveness is uh, at the root of self-control or. Yeah, but the but. I, absolutely. I would say the more I've worked with addicted people, we I've always ended up there as I talk to them, but I always have realized you have to start at throw all that stuff in the garbage. If you don't like it, if what you need is to shoot heroin every day for the rest of your life, I got your back. And then I don't need to tell them until the next day, but I'm going to tell them pretty soon. You're not going to want to shoot heroin for the rest of your life. People need to hear whatever you decide to do. If you need to pound a fifth of booze every day for the rest of your life, I love you and I am here for you. The truth of the matter is the more people are there for them and the more they have positive things going on in their lives, it's the same reason you and I aren't pounding now vodka right now. In part, we got better things to do. I got things going on today that are probably going to trigger my reward system in a much more intricate and novel way which I enjoy more, and by the way, is less addicting when you have an ability in your life or yeah. new things. So. Well, speaking of that, what are some things on your plate or uh, projects that you're working on that people can look forward to? Yeah, so the Dr. Junkie show is now, uh, God, I think I'm somehow cranked out 20 episodes because of COVID. I am working on a book. Um, my goal is really, I'm, I am... This sounds weird, right? But I grew up relatively poor. And I realize even as I say words like this, you're like, what are you talking about? But I haven't managed to like get this thirst for money yet. And I keep having people that are like, oh, cool, get it published so you can sell it. This podcast wasn't really founded in money. And when you have this mentality of you're a criminal, you're a junkie, you're an addicted person, when you like get a legitimate job and your PhD plays out, I'm still like on cloud nine and I could live this way for the rest of my life. But when it comes to projects, I am sort of trying to get the story out there and make sure people have a way to share. I've had half a dozen people now, you know, email me and say, this is something that really helped me. And that's been the thing for me. That's like, great. If, if one person doesn't overdose or if, you know, in the course of the next 50 years, 20 people learn, that's why you shouldn't mix Xanax with benzos. Oh my God. I might save a life or a secondhand life or, you know, save some brain damage, all sorts of things. 
Yeah, there's um, there's a spread. Would you mind uh, talking about the podcast? Because it seems like there's a spread of things that you're doing. There's information. Sure. There's activism. There's a lot of different things. What What do you think yeah. is the kind of encapsulating umbrella, and then the different parts of it? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier, I'm a criminal. I have eight felony convictions, and I got out of prison in Michigan in 2005. So my education's been like pretty frantically packed into the last 15 years. But in my education, I've realized that. One of the things that keeps the war on drugs going or the poverty the way it is in our country is that the few people that make it to the top really stand to gain a lot if everybody else just bickers amongst themselves. Hmm. So the the social activism in the the sex work episode that I did a couple weeks ago is a way for me to get the word out. And actually, I'm learning as I go, because every time I learn something more that connects us, our struggles are the same. Quite often, we are all busy bickering at each other and saying, well, at least I'm not that person and that should still be against the law without yeah. bothering to stop and say, what, it is, what is it about that thing that makes me think it should be against the law? And a lot of times what we think about it is the result of you know, the war on drugs or um, sex work's another good example that we have this image of it being 100% abusive. Everybody's there because you know they're, they're addicted to drugs and so desperate. And then they're being taken advantage of by these men that go out. And we forget that there's a state where sex work is legal and it doesn't look like that there. And it Mm -hmm. doesn't always look like that in the United States, but it's the stereotype, just like with addicted people. Once you apply it, the work is done. And Hmm. so for me, it's reaching out and, and trying to get everybody on board. Okay. And I guess you're working against the grain of the stereotypes and in that kind of broadly you're reaching out and you're making connections and then making connections for other people who are viewing your work. Yeah. 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 And I think it's been weird to recognize that that's not a um, conception that a lot of people in this country have, that these fights are related. And even in our histories, we think of like the civil rights movement of 1964 is like this standalone moment when black folks got some rights and we think of feminism in the different waves of like women got some rights and we forget that in the midst of all those battles were rights that were way bigger than just one group of people but the more we can think about them as just that group of people the more Mm -hmm. the system can sort of grind on and turn out i mean in this in our case of what we're talking about seventy-two thousand dead bodies every year plus a massive prison system well, it, you're doing amazing work, and you're super prolific on it. And I hope that this uh, interview brings more attention to you. And uh, are you going to be? Are you on YouTube at this point? Do you think you'll be? I, yeah, I think I'm going to start. I've, I've noticed. I've had a lot of people say it's actually a powerful way because there's people that do better looking at the interviews. So I've got them stuck. Yeah. When I get some time, I'm going to try to put them up on YouTube as well. Although it looks like the Benjamin Boyce is on YouTube. You already got that space locked down. (laughs) Well, I don't have it. uh, I don't have it uh, registered, trademarked. So Uh, I guess we're just going to have to. Well, you're A, though. Gentlemen's uh, agreement. (laughs) Well, you're 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 Benjamin A. And I'm the I'm the junkie guy. So everybody remember like Benjamin anyways. I guess. I don't know if you say so. But yeah, that's (laughs) I've been told by all my doctor friends, like, stop it. Stop saying that we don't appreciate. (laughs) But again, it's for me, it's been like, I guess you can call me that i'll take it i did the work but what a weird thing right yeah there is one more benjamin boyce he's a british born german pop star i thought he was a christian singer isn't he talk about irony i i I was looking and it looked like he does some (laughs) sort of positive christiany type music I don't know. It's all in German, so I don't really know uh, the, uh, the, the I got to, Well, that lets you know how far I actually followed through. I was like, eh, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much for your yeah, time. Yeah, this has been and, fun. And I appreciate it. Us. 
yeah, I'll, I'll let you know when it's up, and uh, good luck to you. And uh, hopefully, everybody will know where to find you. The links are in the description. And are you on Twitter yet? Just on Facebook? Oh, no, but I should be. I know. I don't know why. I'm, I've, I'm like, if we weren't doing what we're this thing with social media, I'd probably delete it all at this point because it's just yeah. a a big pit, but I think I will yeah. be shortly, but no, right now I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Okay. So you can follow links in either of those to find me as well. And okay, drjunkyshow.com. Well, yeah. I'll make sure that everybody has the tools to access your work. Cool. I appreciate it, Ben. Thanks a Benjamin. lot. Benjamin. Sorry. You're the Benjamin. I'm the Ben. I'm, okay, Ben. <laughs> have a good day. <laughs> Talk to you later. Ciao. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.